All right. In the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, we see him doing a really hard work. So he is sent out to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. This wall had been destroyed pretty badly. It was an arduous and unrelenting task at face value. There weren't a ton of guys to go do this, um, and, and it, it was, they, they were kind of already fighting an uphill battle. But that's not where it stopped. All of a sudden, these enemies of, of Israel, you have Sanballat, from, uh, who was a governor of Samaria, you have Tobiah, the Ammonite, you have other enemies of Israel start to attack them uh, with their words and with threats over and over again. It actually got so bad that, that they had to split up into two groups. One group would be armed and ready to fight, and the other group would be real, rebuilding the wall. And then it continued to get so bad that even the ones that were re- rebuilding the wall carried an, an, a weapon in one hand as they worked. It looked like it was hopeless for them to actually get this done, but despite the opposition of the evil one, despite uh, the opposition of these enemies of Israel, the work was completed. The opposition continued, but the work was completed. And we see here that, that the, the enemy does stand against the Word of God. He does stand against the work of God, and he stands against the workers of God. But yet, although we did see that the work got uh, hindered at times, it never got hampered. In other words, it may have been arrested at points, it may have slowed down at some points, but it never completely went away. God continued to work, and, and the work continued to be persevering throughout that, and God's purpose and his plan always come to, comes to fruition. So keep that in mind as we join into this, uh, into the New Testament. We're going to be in First Thessalonians again. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 17 and, and through 3, 5. So go ahead and join me as we read God's word. It will be up here as well. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Going into chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. God, I, I just pray that we don't take it for granted. God, I pray that I don't take it for granted. You know, we, we're so blessed to have the entire scripture that we're able to read. And in some nations, uh, they only have fragments. The, they ha- it hasn't completely been translated into their native language. And so they just have stories. They, they, they just have fragments that they, that they may have translated and God, may, may we hunger and thirst for your word like that, where, 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 we, where we, just, we can't just take it in little bits and pieces. We, we want all of you. We want all of your word. God, open up our hearts and minds and help us not to take for granted our ability to be able to worship freely here. God, may, may we take full advantage of, of the freedom that we have right now to gather and worship. And Lord God, prepare us for the times to come. Persecution will come. And we're going to learn in this scripture that, that it does come to those who are workers 
of Christ and for Christ. But God, may we stand firm on you, stand firm in the gospel. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. Please be with us today as we go through your word. Amen. So today we're going to see three aspects of a believer's work for Christ. The first is when living for Christ, your work will be hindered at times, right? So I'm going to read verses 17 and 18 again for us. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. As many of you may recall from our previous sermons, and we talked about Acts 17, and we talked about Paul and his companions planting the church in Thessalonica. And they had just gotten started. People are getting saved, Gentile converts more than Jews. But we're seeing these Gentile converts, and what happens? A rebellion, and they get uh, thrown out of the city before really they can get it established the way they'd like to. And so Paul uses this phrase, torn away. Uh, And and this phrase, torn torn away, is actually one Greek word, Aporaphanizo is how you say it. And this word actually was more of being made orphans. Um, that, that word was used and when, when, I, when, I, when a child was torn away from their parents and they were orphaned. And, and just the sadness and, and the, the depth of sadness that, that, result, that, that, res, that would result after that orphanage right, from their parents. And so Paul uses this to let, to let them know just how big of a deal it was that they got ripped away. That his very heart was with them still, even though they weren't in physical, uh, in the same physical place. As the great uh, fourth century theologian John Chrysostom once said, he did not say separated from you. That, that was a word he could have used, nor left behind, but he said orphan from you. He sought a word that might sufficiently show the pain of his soul. And it was this pain that made him yearn to be back with these new believers. He, he wanted to be there so badly and it is this desire that comes into this main thrust of these two verses. And so the question is, if he had that strong of a desire, if he really wanted to go back, why didn't he? Why wasn't he back? And so he gives us an answer for why that was. It was that Satan had hindered them from going back to that area. And this word hindrance is actually a military word. And what would happen was a, 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 a pursuing enemy would be coming. The, the people that were fleeing would go across a bridge or across an area, across a road, and, the, and they would try to destroy and demolish any way of getting to them at that point. So it would be destroying a little bridge or it would be putting rocks and trying to hinder the way. And that is what Satan had done to Paul and his companions. He had completely walled off and uh, they were unable to go there. And this, this imaging that we see here is, is how Satan works. We see in, in 2 Corinthians, Corinthians 4, 4, it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan works in trying to hinder people from hearing the gospel, trying to hinder them from understanding the gospel, and tries to hinder them from growing he blinds the minds of unbelievers. But not only does he work on unbelievers, but we also see that he works on believers, as we've seen here. And, and we see this in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking, to someone, seeking someone to devour. He is your adversary. Satan and his demons are your adversaries. And I think there's a really important distinction we need to note here. Unbelievers aren't our adversaries. And I think sometimes we can, we can think that. But, but, but we see that the gospel and the Bible actually teach that it is Satan and his demons that are our true adversaries. Unbelievers are not. And because 
they're, the unbelievers are nothing more than pawns being used by Satan and his demons to do his bidding. There is an invisible warfare going on around us, and we have no idea a lot of times that what, what is going on in our communities, what's going on in our neighbors' houses, what's going on sometimes in our own homes. And we see this in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Amen? we got the present darkness. That's what we live in right now. It is a present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. My friends, we are not fighting against liberal theology. We are not fighting against liberal politics. We are not following, fighting against pro-abortion groups or sexually perverse individuals or people doing other evil things. Yes, 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that we do set ourselves up against anything that stands in the way of the will of God. If it is against his word, yes, we stand firm. But we got to remember that our real battle is not these people that are being deceived and are believing the lie from the enemy. Our real battle is spiritual and not physical. Our real labor is done on our knees in prayer. Our real battle is, is done through sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighbors and our community and our family. Yes, there, there is a time for activism. There is a time for voting or for public service, rallies, and other ways to po positively influence our culture. But we got to realize our real battle is spiritual in nature. Our, our real fight is against the enemy. And we must grasp the fact that Satan is, is seeking to steal and kill and destroy. He's trying to destroy our lives and trying to hinder the work of the gospel. And we hear that, and sometimes it just sounds so esoteric. You know, we're like, okay, well, well, how does this look? How is Satan hindering me today in my walk with God? How, how, I mean, I really don't feel the, the spiritual warfare the way that Paul's saying here. I mean, Paul's using this military word saying that I got stonewalled pretty much. Like, I could not go back to Thessalonica. So what does it look like for us? And I think the com most common way Satan works in our culture today is busyness. Is busyness. The old quote still rings true. If, if Satan can't make you bad, then he'll make you busy. If he can't get you going down the wrong path, he'll just get you going a different path than what God wants. And I think that so much, of, so much of us have so much going on in our lives that we have no margin to even share the gospel, no margin to even make family worship a priority in our homes, no, mar no margin to really lead our wives or, lead, you know, or, or follow Christ or, or lead our children and tell them about God. And frankly, we don't have time to serve Christ because we're too busy doing what we want to do. We're too busy doing what we want to do instead of what God wants us to do. And I want to clarify, there are seasons that are legitimate seasons in our lives where we are busy. You have a young child. Actually, Adam, we're about to have this happen. You're going to have a young child. You know what? You're going to be busy. And margin, it's not really going to be there. You're not going to have a lot of margin for a bunch of extra things. I don't think Adam's probably going to be on the golf course anytime soon. You know, hit, hit, you know, hitting 18 holes unless if he wants to stay married at least. Um, just joke. Um, but, but, you know, so, so there's going to there's be a margin issue there. Have, having young children takes some margin, right? Uh, ha working in your, your career, you know, you're just starting out. Sometimes those hours can be a little rough for a season. Uh, you know, sometimes you have to work a little more to be, to be able to provide for your family. Sometimes there's going to be those margins. I remember being in residency after medical school. I was working 80 hours a week, and man, I mean, just had no time to do anything other than eat and sleep if I was lucky. And I just remember just being in survival mode. 
And I, I was blessed because I had, had a, a guy in my church at the time who was just a, an incredible evangelist. And, I mean, he just, no matter where you went with him, he was sharing the gospel with somebody. He's one of those guys who just got convicted every time you're around. I'm like, man, I need to be sharing the gospel more. Like, we'd go sit down for some coffee, and he'd share the gospel with somebody. I mean, it was just, no matter where he was, he just did that. And I just remember being, like, so inwardly focused at that point in my life. I was like, man, I, I can't even think clearly. Like, how am I supposed to think about somebody else when I am so miserable? I'm working all the time. I remember him just saying, hey, man, you know, I get it. Your life is tough. And right now, it is, it is very difficult. But he was like, hey, you know what you have that they don't have, a lot of these people? They don't have the hope of Jesus Christ like you do. Yeah, your life is tough. Yeah, your life is difficult. You've got a lot of stress. You've got a lot of things going on. But you know what, man? Those people that are dying in front of you in the hospital, those people that you're caring for in the ER or on the floor, those, you know, those, those, those mothers that might have lost someone, uh, you know, or, or you know, you're, just, you're just looking at, at moms losing their children or, or children losing their, their families, their, their parents, or, you know, older people passing, all these kind of things. Some of these people don't have the hope of Jesus Christ that you have. So you have something to offer to them. You have Jesus Christ. And I just remember being like, you know, it really convicted me a lot to change my attitude and my focus off of myself and on other people. And when I was finally able to do that a little bit better, my life just got so much better. I quit looking at how miserable I was. I quit looking at my own stress and how many patients I had to see that day and what time I had to be at work and how long I had to stay after or how long it had been since I eaten. <laughs> I was hungry. You know, I quit thinking about that and I, I started seeing people and these people are, are destined for hell. They may be dying right now. They may be, and I need, to, I need to reach out and say, hey, you know, do you know Jesus Christ? And it really changed my whole perspective of life. However, I will say this. Although there are legitimate seasons of busyness, you know, residency was a three-year period there. I, I, it would end. It would pass. Praise the Lord, it passed. But I, but I must say that these seasons aren't the main reason most of us are busy in our culture. The, the, these seasons are not the biggest issues. Our hobbies are usually our biggest issues. Our entertainment are likely our biggest issues. And Satan uses these hobbies, this, this entertainment, to completely hinder us from sharing the gospel. Obviously, movies and television are one form. We see some people that are addicted to Netflix and different things like that, and they will binge watch for hours and hours and hours. However, I, I, for the longest time, sports, I think, was the idol of our culture. And it's still up there. Uh, and, and, and if we look right now, um, it's become actually more children's sports even than, than, than professional sports. Pro professional sports still does have a huge hold uh, and, and does, does do a lot. But I, I think travel sports right now are one of the biggest hindrances to the, sh to the sharing, spreading of the gospel. And I'm going to hit it. I know it's the golden calf. I know it's the idol of our culture right now to have your kid in 15 travel sports. But it is, it is destroying families. It is destroying the church. And it is sucking up time and money from American families, and it has taken American families out of church on Sunday mornings. Do you not see the enemy behind this whole movement? I, I, every game is on Sunday. Like, I mean, when I grew up, that didn't happen. You didn't, you didn't have games on Sunday, and if you did, it was definitely afternoon, and, and that was in the more liberal areas. It wouldn't be in a conservative area. Be like, no, we're not doing that. I mean, frankly, you didn't even do hardly anything on Wednesday night. I remember when I played football, it was Monday, Tuesday, Thursday practices. We didn't practice on Wednesday. But, but what, what are we seeing now? What we're seeing is that childhood sports are now in a, a $17 billion industry. Childhood sports bring in more money than the NFL. I mean, how incredible is that? The NFL, it's everywhere. You see logos, you see hats, you see, I mean, these guys are making millions of dollars to play that game. And childhood sports, youth sports, are, are bringing in more money than that. Uh, they actually did a study uh, by Families and Sports Lab. 
And it was done in 2016, so this has probably gotten worse since then, to be honest. And what they did was they showed that, that families who had their child in travel sports spent anywhere between 2 up to 10% of their income on per child on sports. So some families had multiple children in sports spending 10% of their income on each one. Hotels are expensive. Travel is expensive. Food is expensive. And they're going out and these just, to, just to be able to have your kid on these teams, getting the trainings and things like that. And when we compare that to the national drop in church giving, Wow, I mean, it is, it is convicting to our area. Sports is definitely an idol in our nation and is being used by Satan to hinder the spread of the gospel. And, and don't get me wrong, I think that sports are still up there. But I think one other thing has maybe dethroned sports as the greatest hindrance of the spreading of the gospel in America. And I think it's social media. And I'm going to hit the other golden calf of our culture too. Most, Amer- many, uh, most Americans spend countless hours on social media. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm going to say here, it is not a sin to have social media. Social media can be used for good. But you know the average person using social media in 2022, this year, uses it for two and a half hours a day. Two and a half hours. It was just shy of that. Two hours and 27 minutes spent mindlessly looking through Facebook posts and tweets. Mindlessly sharing. And again, I will not say that it's a sin to have social media, but, but I could pretty much say it's probably a sin to use it two and a half hours a day because that means you're not doing a lot of other things you should be doing, sharing the gospel, reading the... Do you read this two and a half hours a day? No, probably not. You know, I, most of us don't. Hopefully we do. That'd be great. But, but we are missing so many opportunities to share the gospel because we are wasting our lives. And I realize it's not kosher to attack social media. I realize that there are some godly people that have social media accounts, and it can be used for for great things. I I get that. So I am not saying that that is a problem. But as a pastor, I'm supposed to see where our culture, where our flock is maybe having some struggles, maybe going through some difficulties. And I think this is one. We have to look at social media, each one of our accounts, whatever we have, we have to look at it and see, is is the good outweighing the harms? Am I sharing the gospel? Am I sitting at the DMV looking at my Facebook while somebody who's going to hell is right beside of me and I'm not paying attention to them? Am I I in line at Piggly Wiggly and I don't even say hi to the cashier because I'm too busy looking to see if somebody tweeted or retweeted what I tweeted? Like, if that's where you're at, that's sin. You're, You're not sharing the gospel. You're being so inwardly focused that you're not paying attention to the people around you. God is giving you opportunities. He gives you opportunities to share the gospel and share the love of Christ. And if you're so busy doing that, then that is, that is a sin. Are you sitting there and your child wants to talk to you about something they're going through? And, and you're like, well, let me, let me finish this Facebook post first. Let, let, well, let, me put, let me put all these pictures about how great our family is on Facebook so that people think we're great, even though I'm not talking to you right now because I'm too busy telling everyone else how great my family is. No, it's like, we need to repent. We got to seriously repent from those things we have to cast off whatever is not eternally significant. We've got to focus on what is. And you can use social media for eternally significant things, but I'll be honest, most of us don't. Most of us don't. Don't let Satan hinder the work of the gospel. When living for Christ, your work will be hindered at times. But take heart, it will also be helpful. That brings us to our second point. When living for Christ, your work will be helpful. We'll read 19 and 20 here. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are glory and joy. So changing gears here, now we see Paul talking about how that 
just how they make him feel, what, what he experiences through this. They are his glory and joy. They are a sign that what he's doing is not in vain. There, there are people who have come to salvation because of the work that he and his companions have done. And this crown of boasting is a, a victor's crown or wreath that we, saw, we see in athletics. It was used for, for a winning athlete in, in the Olympics. And he uses this not to boast in himself. He uses this to boast in Christ. And their, the, the, the faith of the church of Thessalonica are a sign of his faithful work and proof of his faithful work as an evangelist. And I, I want to hesitate here to, to show Paul doesn't see the church in Thessalonica as another notch in his belt. I, another, oh, look how great we are. And there are pastors and evangelists who do that, where it's like, look at how many people I've saved. And I've not saved anyone, in case you're wondering. I, I, I can't save anyone. You can't save anyone. Only God saves people. And, and so Paul understood that the true labor, the true laborer for Christ, understands that everything is sovereignly done by the Creator God. All souls are drawn to God by the Holy Spirit. They, they have to be drawn, drawn to God before they become a Christian. No one is good, not, not even one, Romans 3. No one seeks after God, but God seeks after them. Praise the Lord for that, just like the prodigal son. God seeks after them, and our job is to share the gospel, to spread the seed, the word of God, the gospel, to, to everyone that we run into, that, that God opens a door to do that. I'm not saying you go around bashing people in the Bible, but it's amazing how many times you can bring up the gospel, bring up Jesus in certain things. You just ask people, okay, what kind of faith do you have? God will, well, he will open those up. But the true evangelist, the true servant of God, the true Christian believer that is sharing the gospel realizes that all the work is done by God through you as God works in you so that you can't boast about any of your works. And the, the beauty of that is it's so much like Paul had such liberty, Christian liberty, to share the gospel in all these places because he knew that everything rose and fell with Christ. If he ended up in prison, it was God's will. If, if he had a bunch of converts, it was God's will, and it kept him from becoming conceited and prideful. It helps us to realize that everything is God. Moving on to, to verses 1 and, and 2 in chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. So after, in, in Acts 17, after they got thrown out of Thessalonica, they went to Berea and shared the gospel. And they were only there for a little while, too, because you know what happened? The Thessalonican Jews said, hey, he's just in a few towns over. Let's go and let's throw him out of there, too. And they do. And so they throw him out of Berea as well. So then he ends up in Athens, and that is where he, Timothy is sent back to Thessalonica. So it's at this point that he's sent back. And, and look at the words that, that Paul uses here. He's like, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And you're like, well, you still have your other companions. What are you saying, Paul? Like, you're left alone? Like, what about your other homeboys that you're with, right? Well, he, he just realized the special relationship that Paul has with Timothy. Timothy is like his adopted spiritual son. He has, taken, he has seen Timothy converted, and he's raised Timothy up in the faith. And Timothy ends up, you just look at the, the letters to Timothy later on, and you see the special relationship between Paul and his adopted spiritual son, Timothy. And so it, it hurt him to send Timothy back. Obviously, right, they'd been thrown out of town, so Timothy could have gotten killed. Like, this was a big deal. They, they kind of recognized, hey, this guy was with Paul, right? And, and, and he, he could have been killed by going back. Praise God, he, he wasn't. We see him come back in our next, uh, our next sermon. But, but Timothy was sent to help the church of Thessalonica. 
and he was sent there for a couple of reasons. We'll, we'll see actually three once we get to the, the third point here. But the first one, he was sent there to establish them and their faith, to establish them and their faith. And the Greek word for establish here is sterizo, uh, which can mean strengthen as well. And as we discussed, that they weren't there really long before they got thrown out. So, so this church had not been firmly established on the, on the word of God. Uh, they didn't have a lot of time to train up elders, to, to raise up disciples. And so he, he went there to try to make sure that their foundation was solid, that they were on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And if we, if we remember back to our first sermon, the people of Thessalonica, the, the Gentile unbeliever, pagan unbelievers, they had up to 25 or more gods and goddesses. And so this was a huge paradigm shift to give up all these gods and goddesses for the one true God. And they only had a few probably weeks, if not maybe a couple of few months, with Paul and his companions before being thrown out. We're not sure exactly how long. It was as little as three weeks, but probably a little bit longer than that. And so this was a, a huge transition. Obviously, the Jews who were converted, which there, weren't, there were only a few of them that were converted, may, maybe had a little less far to go, but the pagan Gentiles, they had a long way to go. I mean, they, they had really been into a Roman culture that was pretty, pretty horrible. The second reason that he was sent was to exhort them in the faith, exhort them in the faith. And the Greek word here is parakaleo, which can also mean to implore or encourage or comfort. It's a word used for the Holy Spirit at times who comforts us and guides us. And because this baby church was left in infancy whenever they were sent out, he realized that they needed encouragement and comfort because, you know what, to make that huge change, to go from 25 gods and goddesses to be all about the culture and just ingrained in there and to go all of a sudden to the way, to, to go to Christianity. Also, this was a huge transition. That got them thrown out of a lot of stuff. They probably, a lot of them lost their jobs, maybe lost their houses. You know, they didn't lose their car because they didn't have cars back then, but maybe they lost their camel. Who knows? I mean, but, you know, but they had been through a lot at that point, and so they needed comforted. They needed encouraged. They needed somebody to come and say, hey, you know what, man? We know what you've went through. We've went through this as well. These persecutions were inevitably befalling them at the time. And when you see the same language used in Acts 14, 22 through 23, and Paul and his companions had established and, and, and exhorted churches in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And this is what they said. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for, for, for them at every church, with prayer and fasting they committed, committed them to the Lord and whom they had believed. Note the assurance of tribulation and hardship. Actually, you see him say here, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It actually says, you know, in order to be a Christian, you're going to go through tribulations. It's, it's going to happen. And through that, you will finally enter into the kingdom of God. And praise God, when you enter into the kingdom of God, there will be no more pain. There will be no more hardships. But when living for Christ, your work will be hindered at times, yet it will be helpful and, and used by God. But it will also be, coming to our last point, hard. When living for Christ, your work will be hard. Let's read verses 3 and 4 first. That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So Paul's just discussed the need for comfort and encouragement and being established and rooted in Christ. And then he moves on to talking about the afflictions and sufferings. 
And it's in this particular order because you have to be rooted and firmly established in Christ first and then encouraged in Christ. And it's almost like sprinkling some fertilizer beside the tree as it, as it gets rooted and it grows. And once it is there, then it can do what the third reason Paul was sent or Timothy was sent. And the third reason was to help them stand firm, to help them stand firm in the midst of adversity. That no one is moved by these afflictions. And this, just like a tree in a hurricane, you know, if, if it is firmly rooted, it won't tip over. It, it won't go. He wanted them to stand firm. But this word also can also mean, this whole, this word moved can also mean flattery. And, and we actually see that concept in Genesis chapter 3. And we see Satan appear as a serpent, and we're, most of us here are familiar with the, with the account, and so the serpent comes and, and flatters Eve. And, and one of the enemy's ways of getting us to move is not always just coming like a linebacker and tackle, tackling us, which it does happen sometimes, especially in cultures that are, are very pagan or uh, Islamic and different things like that. You see that happen, just direct assaults. But, but, but one of the ways he does is by flattery. So he, he tells Eve, ah, oh, you know, it's, you, you deserve it, right? It's going to open up your eyes. You're going to be like God. He doesn't want you to eat that because he doesn't want you to be like him. And so with that flattering, what happens? She moves to eating of the forbidden fruit. And beware, brothers and sisters, of flattery like this from the evil one. Although Satan may directly attack you, sometimes it can be like this. Worldly philosophies, liberal theologies teachings of relative truth today uh, they, 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 they flatter you humanism you're great you deserve a break today you deserve this you know what you need to put more and more money back for yourself because you need to have a comfortable retirement and you need to be able to move to florida because that's what everybody does uh you know i think it was uh i heard just the other day florida is the uh, god's nursing home uh is what they kind of what, what somebody said i was like you know this is what we do you need to put all this stuff because it's all about you I'm not saying retirement's a sin, but, but it's not all about ourselves. When, when we look at ourselves and, we, and we're all about ourselves, a lot of times that's the enemy. The enemy keeping us from giving generously to what God wants us to give to, serving generously with our time and our efforts and our, what he's given us. And with just a little time with those humanistic thoughts and those things that kind of come in, we start to move a little farther away from the plan that God has for us and a little bit further away from the plan that God has for us. Praise God. We know that those who are truly believers, they will repent. Jesus doesn't lose anyone. No one's plucked out of his hand, as John 10, 28 says. But those who are not his, who, who, who are not inwardly believers, even though they appear outwardly, they will continue down that path and they will end up somewhere in left or right field. Moving on to verse 4. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, just as you know. Paul said, don't be surprised. We told you it was going to be hard. If you're going to follow Christ, this is what's going to happen. Jesus said to count the costs, right? And we see here actually in John 15, 20, Jesus says this, the servant is not greater than his master. We've talked about this before. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as well. But if they keep my word, they'll also keep yours. This is a good word for us today. We should not be surprised when persecutions or afflictions occur to us. Jesus and Paul both taught it's not if, but it's when. And actually, it's a part of moving into the kingdom of God as we move forward. And finally, verse 5. 
I pray like Paul does here. For this reason, when I could bear it no, no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I pray that each one of you are true believers, that you are rooted in Jesus Christ, that you put your faith in the Savior who died on the cross for our sins some 2,000 years ago on that cross, that took my sin and your sin on, and was nailed to that cross and suffered for our sake. The one who knew no sin but became sin so that we may become the righteousness of God who was crucified, buried, and rose three days later. If, if your life is not firmly established uh, on the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ, then you will be moved, and you will not be able to stand firm because you were built on the, on the sand, as we talked about a few weeks ago. It's only by following him, believing in him, that we can be truly, st- that we can truly stand firm. And this kind of brings us into the conclusion today. Sa- Satan will seek to hinder the work of believers. Your work will be hard and arduous at times. It will be very difficult. But your work, when done through the power of Jesus Christ, it will be helpful in bringing about the Lord's will here on earth. He will use you to strengthen and encourage others and to share the gospel. Stand firm in Christ and do not be moved, my friends. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that that each one of us here has put our faith and our trust in you. I pray that we are firmly rooted in you. God, I pray that if someone is not, if someone is like, yeah, I see myself and I, I've moved and I've been flattered and I've moved and I've bought into to relative truth and I've moved a little further this way and I've moved a little further this way and now I don't even know which way to get to, get to that path. Uh, you know, I, I know I don't repent. I know I, I know I don't feel conviction when I, I feel guilt, but I don't really feel conviction when I sin. I, I want to sin all the time. That's, that's what my life is. I pray that, pray that you repent and give your life fully to Christ. We can be so blind and so, so deceived into thinking that we are true believers. But Jesus said that, that some of you will come and, and you'll say, look what I did for you, Lord. And some of these people even cast out demons in your name. And you said, depart from me. I never knew you. God, there, there are some of us who have done great things. We come to church. We come to Sunday school. We are growth group. We, we do all these things for you, God. But but you will say, depart from me. I never knew you because our heart is not fully with you. And so God, if that, if that is anyone here, I pray that they take this time and they repent of their sins and they turn from it and they give their life fully to you. You don't just take part of it. You're not their co-pilot. We've talked about that before. You want all of us. We, we need to be all in. And so God, I just pray, I'd love to talk to you after the service if that's somebody here. And for us who are believers, God, help us to stand firm, encourage us, and help us to walk in a world that continually persecutes Christianity. We love you, Lord. Amen.